I'd like to thank a brand new sponsor, Clear, for supporting my podcast. Clear is a secure identity platform that provides a smooth and quick experience at airports, stadiums, concert halls, and other venues nationwide. For a limited time, you can get two months of Clear for free by going to clearme.com slash gold2 and use the promo code gold2. Major stock market indexes finished broadly lower on Friday, though it was a mixed bag on the week, with the S&P and the NASDAQ higher and the Dow Jones and the Russell 2000 lower. Although on the month, it was a different story. All of the stock market indexes finished with solid gains during the month of April. The smallest being registered by the Russell 2000, which was up 2%. The Dow saw a rise of 2.7, but much bigger gains in the S&P and the NASDAQ powered by the tech sector. S&P up about 5% and the NASDAQ up 6% on the month. But most things were up on the month of April. Gold was up 3.5%. Even bonds were up as yields on long-term treasuries moved lower a bit. Oil was the biggest gainer on the month. Prices were up 7.5%, including a 2.3% rise on the week. And that is including the $1.40 drop that we ended the week yesterday. The one exception was the U.S. dollar index, which finished the month down by 2%, despite a pretty nice rise yesterday. In fact, the rise in the dollar And the sell-off in the stock market can be attributed to some comments from Dallas Fed Chairman Robert Kaplan. He was speaking about some of the excesses and the imbalances that he was observing in the markets. Of course, that is a tremendous understatement. We have never really seen imbalances this great, not just in the markets, but in the overall economy. And I'll get into that again later But just looking at the markets, I was reading a statistic. It was up on Zero Hedge regarding the number of days in April where 95% of stocks were trading above their 200-day moving average. It was 18 days, and that is a record high. The previous record high for the number of days in a month where 95% of the stocks were above their 200-day moving average was back in September of 2009. And if you remember what was going on back then, the markets collapsed in 2008, and then they came roaring back in 2009. So we had a very, very weak market, and then we had a strong recovery. It's a little bit similar to what's going on now in that we had a collapse in the market following the COVID-related sell-off. But to me, seeing this much optimism, given the underlying weaknesses in the economy that everybody is ignoring, I don't know that you can say that this is a bullish sign, because to me, it shows that investors are indiscriminately buying stocks. doesn't really matter what the real outlook is for their business. They're buying everything. There is maximum enthusiasm about this market, and that's why so many stocks 
are trading above those moving averages. So as a contrarian indicator, this is something that should be a concern. Potentially, that is what Kaplan is referring to when he's talking about excesses or imbalances. But to me, the bigger excesses and imbalances are on the economic level, which are being swept under the rug. But as soon as Kaplan made these comments, and in fact, he went on to say, and I I think this is about a quote, I'm trying to remember what he said, but that he was very attentive to what's happening. And that's why he thinks that at the earliest opportunity, it would be appropriate for the FOMC to start talking about adjusting bond purchases. So first of all, he didn't say it would be appropriate to start adjusting bond purchases. He said it would be appropriate to start talking about adjusting it. Well, talking about doing something and doing something are very different things. In fact, they could start talking about adjusting bond purchases and then decide not to actually do it. But the market is very concerned about any movement when it comes to the Fed's balance sheet. So just the hint that they may start talking about adjusting those purchases was a negative for the market. And then Kaplan specifically called out the housing market for excesses and thought that maybe it would be appropriate for rate hikes to begin in 2022, which is next year, maybe to cool off the excesses in the housing market. And you can pretty much look at the stock market, the gold market, the dollar, as soon as these comments came out that were interpreted, oh, this is a hawkish comment from the Fed about tapering the balance sheet, about starting to raise interest rates, and immediately stocks went down, gold got hit, the dollar went up. But again, this is all a bunch of nonsense because it doesn't really matter what Robert Kaplan is saying. What matters is what the Fed is actually going to do. And Jerome Powell has a lot more influence over the FOMC than one member who could easily dissent and you know we could still have the same Fed policy. In fact, what Robert Kaplan said yesterday flies in the face of what Jerome Powell said two days earlier on Wednesday in his press conference. So I think you could pretty much ignore what Kaplan is saying. I agree there are imbalances. They're much bigger than what he's letting on. It's not only appropriate to start talking about shrinking the balance sheet, they should already be shrinking it. In fact, it was inappropriate to blow it up to the size that it's already at. And they shouldn't start raising rates in 2022. They should be raising them now. In fact, they never should have cut them this low in the first place. What they should have done is irrelevant to what they are going to do. And it doesn't really matter what they say. The market still haven't grasped the idea that the Fed is in a box Sure, it can talk about the need to taper its asset purchases. It could talk about normalizing interest rates, but that's all it could do. Talk is cheap. Actions are expensive and they can't afford to pay the price, or at least they think the economy can't afford it. The government can't afford it. So even if higher interest rates are appropriate, and they are, they're not going to happen because they're not appropriate for maintaining the bubble economy. And the bubble economy is all we've got. Of course, another reason why there may have been a bit of selling in the stock market yesterday was the month of April is over 
And that means the month of May is now upon us. And of course, there is a old Wall Street adage about selling in May and going away. Now, I don't think it's worked too well recently, but a lot of stock traders uh, still know that adage and though and they may be worried about some selling in May, especially given the big run up that we've had earlier in the year and the specter of rising interest rates and tax increases, which again, I think should be exacting an even heavier toll in the near term on the stock market because no one knows exactly how high taxes are going to rise and whether or not those higher taxes will in fact spark investors who are holding on to capital gains to start selling their stocks in 2021 before the potential higher taxes kick in in 2022. But of course, any increase in corporate taxes means that corporate after-tax incomes are going to be lower. And stocks are priced They are valued based on the present value of their future after-tax earnings because pre-tax earnings don't matter because it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. So stocks are valued on their after-tax earnings, not their pre-tax earnings. And if taxes go up, well, by definition, your after-tax earnings go down. It's the exact opposite of what happened when Trump was president. And, you know, everybody was talking about the bullish effect that lower corporate taxes had on stocks, but nobody is really talking about the bearish effects that higher corporate taxes will have on stocks. Again, maybe they believe that those bearish effects will be offset by the bullish effects of the Fed printing more money. An interesting point, though, I want to make about the dollar, which I mentioned dropped a couple of percent on the month, is a story I read about Russian exports in U.S. dollars falling below 50% for the first time ever, meaning that when Russia exports products, the people who are paying for those products are not paying in U.S. dollars. They're paying in other currencies. The most notable increase is with euros. Euros now account for better than a third of Russian exports, meaning when Russia exports products, the exporters are being paid in euros. And in fact, the biggest increase in bilateral trade in euros is with China. So in the past, when China and Russia were trading with one another, they paid and settled their transactions in dollars. And while they're still doing that, they're doing it to a much lesser degree than they were in the past. And more and more of the transactions are being settled in euros. And of course, transactions are also settled in rubles and yuan. And in fact, in keeping with their reduced reliance on U.S. dollars, if you look at Russians' foreign exchange reserves, the percent that dollars comprise of those reserves is steadily eroding. And you can see that the dollar reserves are being replaced by a combination of euros and gold. And one of the reasons that this is very important. If you look at these record trade deficits that I have been talking about, one of the reasons, for example, that China may be willing or is willing to export products to America in exchange for dollars is because China can then take those dollars and use them to buy products in Russia. But if Russia 
no longer wants the dollars either. If Russian companies prefer to be paid in either rubles or euros, well, then the Chinese don't need those dollars that they earned trading with America. So either they no longer need to trade with America or the minute they get dollars, they need to dump them onto the market to get a currency that Russian exporters actually want to be paid in. But as the world is less and less reliant on the U.S. dollar, it becomes more and more difficult for the U.S. to keep printing dollars and giving them to Americans to spend. And at the moment, Americans are spending dollars in record numbers. In fact, if you look at the big economic news that came out on Friday, and we got quite a few reports that I'll discuss, but the biggest one was the personal income and spending numbers for March. And the financial media was all over this. As far as they're concerned, this is fantastic news. The economy is booming. Uh, It's the roaring 20s all over again. The consensus was for personal income to go up by 20.3%. And it actually exceeded that with a 21.1% increase in incomes. Spending not up nearly as much, but still a big number. They were looking for a 4% gain in consumer spending. Instead, consumers increased their spending by 4.2%. But it's not just spending that was up. It was also saving. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The savings rate in March ended up being 27.6%. That's the second highest savings rate ever. Now, the first highest savings rate actually happened last year in April. That was when the economy was in full lockdown mode and everybody received their stimulus checks and they couldn't leave their homes to spend them. So a good chunk of those stimulus checks were saved. Some of it, obviously, the savings were diverted into the stock market. People were buying stocks on Robinhood or they were buying cryptocurrencies on Coinbase. And no doubt, some of the stimulus money that Americans received in March also went into the stock market and cryptocurrencies. But the most significant aspect of this surge in personal income is that it does not relate to economic activity. It's not that American citizens were a lot more productive in March and their productivity resulted in enhanced incomes. That didn't happen. Where did all this income come from that Americans received. They didn't really earn it. They just received it and they got it from the government. In fact, I think we have an all-time record high right now. If you look at the percentage of household income that is coming from government, 34% of the household income is coming from the government. That's just over one-third of all the income is from the government. These are transfer payments, except In many cases, 
nothing is actually being transferred because that would mean the government was taking money from some people and transferring it to other people. A lot of this money is just being created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. So inflation is what is powering increased incomes. The Federal Reserve just creates money out of thin air and makes it available to the U.S. government, which then writes a check and sends it to American households. And that is where the added income is coming from. So this is totally artificial. We should not be celebrating this record surge in household income when the income was not earned, when the income was provided by the government. You know, it'd be like parents are bragging about their their kid that got an A on his exam, even though he cheated on the test. I mean, what does it mean if you got your A by cheating? You got to earn your A honestly if you're going to brag about it. The U.S. is cheating right now, right? We're like a, an athlete that's all doped up on steroids, and we're trying to claim that we're setting all these records. Yeah, because we've got the steroids, this artificial stimulant that is enhancing performance. But, you know, just like when an athlete is taking steroids or something like that, it could do some long-term damage to the health of that athlete. What the Fed is doing to goose the economy in the short run is going to have tremendous long-term damage. I mean, just like if a kid is cheating on his tests, well, maybe he gets a good grade, but he doesn't actually learn anything. So he's not actually going to be you know, more valuable in his life because he didn't actually learn anything from his education because he cheated his way through school. We are not going to be prospering long-term as a result of this surge in consumer income because it's not real income. You see, when income is going up as a result of productivity, it means the people who are earning more money are producing more stuff. So as a result of their efforts, there are more goods and services available to buy. And because they helped in the creation of those goods and services, they were able to earn money. And so now they get to consume some of the goods and services that they helped to create and, and provide. But if people are just sitting at home producing absolutely nothing, yet they have this windfall of income coming in from the government, this is not a good economy. All this means is that prices are going to go much higher as people try to spend the money they didn't earn buying products that they didn't help make. Now, in the short run, this is being offset so much by this massive influx of imports that are flooding into the country. But these import prices are already starting to rise, not just the price of the imports themselves, but the cost of shipping all those goods to the U.S. are going up. And so the American consumer has to pay both. They have to pay the higher cost of buying the products and the higher cost of bringing the products to the United States. So are you stressed out every time you go to the airport? Well, one way to reduce the stress is by becoming a member of CLEAR. Clear is a secure identity platform that helps create a quicker and easier journey through airports and beyond. Clear actually replaces the need to present your physical ID. After a brief one-time enrollment with your U.S. government-issued ID, you can use your face or your eyes for a safer, touchless entry. It's easy to sign up. You can create your account online before you go to the airport. Once you get to the airport, a Clear ambassador helps you finish the process. Then you can immediately start using Clear. And once you're a member, the next time you go to the airport, the Clear representative will personally escort you through security. 
And it's not just at airports. You can actually use your clear to check in at stadiums, arenas, concert spaces, restaurants, and much, much more. Plus, if you're signing up with a family, you can add as much as three adult family members at a discounted rate, and all your kids that are under 18 are automatically members for free. So join the over 5.5 million people who are already using Clear, including me. I've been using Clear for years, and I love it. Of course, I haven't really used it much recently uh, as a result of COVID, uh, but I am at some point looking forward to a more normalized travel schedule, and that's when the benefits of Clear really kick in. And for a limited time only, you can get your first two months of Clear for free by going to clearme.com slash gold2 and use the promo code gold2. That's the number two. You don't spell it out, T-W-O, gold2. That's clear, C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com slash gold2. With promo code gold2, you'll get your first two months of clear absolutely free, but this offer is limited, so act fast. And the problem, too, with that increased savings rate, I mean, normally, I would be saying that's a good thing when Americans are saving more out of their incomes because we need savings to finance capital investment. I mean, we need savings in this country. That is a big problem. But I don't think what we're experiencing right now is a real shift in savings and consumption patterns. I just think the government is showering families with money so fast that they can't spend it as fast as the government is providing it, especially when you have an economy that's still in a semi-lockdown mode. Most of the increased spending is on goods. And again, you're seeing that in the trade deficits, but the spending on services hasn't come back in full yet, but it will. I mean, all this cash is literally burning holes in the pockets of Americans. They will spend this money. And all of the savings that is going to be turned into spending is going to push prices up even higher. And then, of course, there's going to be all the new money that the government is going to continue uh, to provide the economy, especially if we get this American Families Act passed and we incentivize so many Americans to basically take what amounts to a 90-day paid vacation where they spend 90 days every year doing absolutely nothing to add to the economic output of the nation but get government checks to start buying stuff that they didn't help produce. So all of this is a real negative sign of massive inflation. In fact, look at some of the other prices that we're already seeing. We got the Chicago PMI that came out for April and it shot up to 72.1. That is the highest since December of 1983. And what was happening back in 1983, we were actually coming out of the worst recession since the Great Depression. This was early in the Reagan term, where initially you had Volcker allowing short-term interest rates to rise up to 20%, and we had a really big recession as we broke the back of the inflation that had ravaged the country during the 1970s. And then as the economy really started to boom in 1983, coming out of that deep recession, then we had a PMI number at this level. But that was a more legitimate PMI because it happened with rates very high. 
the Fed was not artificially stimulating the economy to the degree that it's doing it now. In fact, everything, all of this economic performance has been enhanced by the Fed. That's why I do not understand the universally bullish coverage that we're seeing on these numbers while everybody completely ignores the only reason that these numbers are so strong with any economic series is because the Federal Reserve is showering the economy with freshly printed money and everybody is going on a shopping spree. But buried inside that PMI number was the biggest jump in prices paid in 41 years. And uh, purchasing managers are reporting widespread shortages, raw materials, backlog, rising costs across the supply chain. In fact, on Thursday, we had, I think it was maybe a 11, 12, 13% drop in Ford stock, although it rebounded about 2.5% yesterday. But the reason that Ford stock really crashed on Thursday was because of the semiconductor shortage that was responsible for a big delay in production. Ford is not able to produce the cars because they can't get the semiconductors to put into the cars. The chip shortage uh, is impeding on their ability to produce. And this is the type of stuff that is going to be happening across the country because we're printing a lot more money faster than we can produce stuff or faster than we can import stuff from the countries that actually have strong enough economies to produce the stuff that we can't. We also got a report on farm prices. This is for the month of March. Prices were up 2.6% month over month. That's a pretty big drop from the 6.3% month over month gain from the prior month. But year over year, the increase is now 6.4%. So as of last month, the year over year increase in farm prices, right? We're talking about food prices was up 5.6%. Now we are up 6.4%, right? The Fed is still talking about 2% inflation. And here you can go back year over year and see that food prices up 6.4%. And you know what? It's going to keep on going up. Now, yes, these are the commodities that the farmers are growing, but this is what we're eating. All these ingredients are going into the food. But you know what? Everything else is getting more expensive. The transportation, the packaging. I mean, all of the costs that go into putting food on the shelves in the grocery stores are going up. So the cost of eating is going to go through the roof because of all the money that we're printing. Labor costs also are starting to rise. We got the employment cost index on Friday as well. And look at the increase for Q1, 0.9% increase in labor costs. That beats the 0.7% that had been expected. Year over year, labor costs up 2.6%. Again, here, even those costs are rising faster than the 2%. You know, you have a lot of people that still think that we can't have inflation unless we have rising wages too. They keep referring to wage price spiral type analysis. But I've kept saying that it's not necessary for wages to rise for other prices to go up. Wages are merely the price of labor. You can have other prices that are going up even as the price of labor stagnates. But in this case, labor costs are going up 
And one of the main reasons that they're going up is because it's so hard to hire people because so many people would prefer not to work because the government is making them a better deal not to work than employers are offering to work. That's why you're reading all these anecdotal stories. Companies are paying people just to interview for jobs. And based on a lot of these promises that are now being made by the Biden administration, in fact, I read an article where AOC is actually pleasantly surprised that Biden is actually governing more to the left than she had thought. And we're actually going to get more of her agenda uh, enacted, which means this, you know, American Families Plan really boils down to a socialist plan. That's really what it is. It's about creating an army of voters that are permanent wards of the U.S. government and basically offering people the opportunity to live off their fellow citizens. You don't actually have to earn a living. You can just choose not to work and you're going to get provided uh, with all these comforts uh, thanks to the government. And so to the extent that employers have to convince people to get off the couch and show up at work, uh, they're going to have to pay higher and higher wages. And of course, this means higher and higher prices for whatever these workers are helping to produce or whatever services they are helping to provide. You know, also, despite the big increase in oil prices, take a look at the North American rig count, which really continues to stagnate. In the prior week, it dropped from 493 to 491. In the U.S., there was a slight increase. So the drop was in Canada, but we only went up from 438 to 440. That is nothing, despite these big increases in oil prices. And, you know, I think we're going to get to $100 a barrel before the end of the year. And we are not seeing the increase in production that a lot of people would have expected to accompany the increase in price. That means prices are going to rise a lot more than people think because the extra supply is not coming on stream. And it also means that that extra oil that we're going to need is going to have to be increasingly imported from the rest of the world. And of course, since we are relying more and more on imports more than ever before, all of those imports have to be transported across the ocean and it takes a lot of oil to power those ships. And so as more and more ships need more and more oil to bring more stuff to America, the cost of bringing all that stuff to America is gonna surge even faster than it's already surging. And so all of these prices are going to be paid by Americans. But the important thing to remember and to take away from the market is the narrative right now that inflation is going to be contained, that the Federal Reserve is going to be forced to raise interest rates sooner than it is currently posturing it will do, that it is going to be tapering its bond purchases sooner than it has been suggesting, that's not true. It's that false belief that has been suppressing the price of gold and silver. It's been that false belief that's actually why the dollar hasn't fallen more than it's already fallen. Because people still believe in the fantasy that what they are witnessing in the U.S. economy is real. They don't understand that it is a complete illusion based on the magic being performed by the Fed. And the Fed can no more remove that accommodation, right? It cannot allow interest rates to rise. 
It cannot taper its bond purchases any more than it was able to do it before. It began, it started, it tried to normalize interest rates, and then it had to stop. It had to return to zero before we got anywhere near normal. The Fed tried to shrink its balance sheet, but it did not succeed. The balance sheet is now bigger than ever. But at least back in 2015 or 16 or 17, the Fed could at least begin that journey, even if it had to abort it long before it finished it, it at least was able to begin a journey that it could never complete. At this point, it's not even possible to begin because even the beginning would result in a collapse. And if you remember, the reason that I kept saying that the Fed could not do what it was forecasting back when they started talking about normalizing interest rates and shrinking the balance sheet. And a lot of people were saying, well, it's going to be a very difficult trick for the Fed to do, but we think that they can finesse it. We have confidence in their ability to pull this off. How did I describe what the Fed needed to do? I said what the Fed was trying to do was pull a table out from under the cloth, that the trick of pulling the tablecloth out from under the dishes, that was a very difficult trick to do. But if you practiced it, you could do it. It was possible. But I was saying what the Fed wanted to do was the impossible. They wanted to pull the table out from under the cloth and leave the cloth and the dishes just floating in midair. The reason for that analogy was that I said the entire economy was dependent on the Fed's monetary support and that the Fed could not withdraw that support without toppling the economy. Well, the economy that we have today is far more dependent on 0% interest rates in QE than it was back then. And in fact, the U.S. government is far more dependent on the Fed's monetization of its debt than it was then, especially if you consider the fact that not only are the U.S. deficits much larger now than they were back then, but the U.S. government can't rely on help from its friends. As I just explained earlier in the podcasts, the Russians are backing away. The Chinese are backing away. When the Fed did QE1, China was a big buyer of U.S. treasuries. That helped us finance quantitative easing. It took some of the pressure rather off the Fed when you had a lot of the debt being bought up by foreign governments. That's not happening anymore. The foreign governments don't want our bonds. In fact, they want to sell the bonds they've already got. Foreign governments are going to be competing with the U.S. government to sell U.S. treasuries. And who is the buyer? The Fed, right? It's not the buyer of last resort. It's the buyer of only resort. And so they're going to keep buying, but they can only keep buying if they keep printing. And the other factor is Social Security. Social Security is now operating at a huge deficit. It's not at a surplus anymore where they're collecting more in taxes than they're paying out in benefits and using the surplus to buy U.S. treasuries. What's happening now is they're collecting less in taxes than they're spending in benefits. And then they have to fund those deficits by unloading the treasuries from their quote unquote trust funds. But now the Social Security trust funds are competing with the Treasury to unload 
Treasury bonds. And so the Fed doesn't have help from anybody. It's got to do all of it by itself. So to think that the Fed is going to just put an end to this and go cold turkey or even reduce the amount of monetary support, monetary heroin being supplied to this economy, it's not going to happen. And it's just that investors still don't appreciate the degree to which this economy is phony and completely dependent on the Federal Reserve. And so once you understand that reality, then you know that the Fed is all bark and no bite when it comes to ever normalizing rates or uh, reducing its asset purchases. In fact, the Fed is going to be forced to dramatically increase the size of its asset purchase program, especially if these new Biden stimulus bills get passed. Because after all, where is the money going to come from? I mean, sure, they're talking about taxing the rich, but they're already backtracking on that because there's a lot of rich Democrats that don't want to be taxed. So the tax hikes probably won't even be as big as the ones they're talking about. But even if they were, even if all of these higher taxes were enacted, it wouldn't even come close to covering the costs, which are going to explode for reasons that I explained in the podcast I did on Thursday. All of these programs replete with moral hazard are going to cost maybe 10 times as much as what they think. And the revenues that they expect to raise will actually be less than what they anticipate. So where is the money going to come from? It's going to come from the Fed. The Fed is going to print all this money. And so all this talk about tighter monetary policy, it ain't going to happen. And at some point, the markets are going to have to come to terms with the reality of what we're looking at. And when they do, that's when the price of gold is going to take off. It's going to go through the roof and the dollar is going to go through the floor. 